Howdy. You're listening to the Texas A&M RUF podcast. Hope you enjoyed the talk. Welcome back to another week of RUF. My name is Austin McCann. I'm the RUF campus minister here. Really, if this is your first time uh, to RUF, we're really glad you're here. We believe this, that you're never so good that you stand outside the need of God's grace, while at the same time, you're never so bad that you stand outside the reach of His grace. And we hope that you experience that when you come to RUF, when you interact with the community here, interact with me. When you come, you'll see that you can leave and taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, so we're really glad uh, that you're here with us this evening. Um, look, welcome back, especially if you went to Winter Conference this past week and it was a blast. Um, if Winter Conference, if you weren't able to go to Winter, Winter Conference, that's okay. Because Winter Conference was an appetizer to joy and fellowship and rest and awesome teaching. Then Summer Conference is the main course. Okay, so that's coming up. Uh, May 13th through the 18th. So mark your calendars, May 13th through the 18th, RUF Summer Conference at Laguna uh, Beach Christian Retreat down in Panama City in, in, uh, in Florida. It's awesome. Uh, so that we'll be announcing and sending out details and registration coming up in a couple of weeks. It's really great. Um, well, tonight we have a very, very special guest with us. Normally, we have been going uh, in our series throughout... Uh, this spring semester, studying the life of David in uh, the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel. But tonight we're taking a break from that because we have a very special guest with us. I'm privi- privileged to uh, introduce Joshua Coleman. Uh, Joshua was born and raised in Bryan, Texas. He is the son of Pastor Way Coleman at Westminster Presbyterian Church, who's actually here tonight with us. Uh, but Joshua is a former Texas Aggie class of 2019. Uh, he also uh, he was also very involved in Texas A&M RUF, and he met his wonderful wife Sarah, who's with us tonight through RUF as well. She is studying to be a veterinarian. She finishes in May. Is that right? Finishes in May. That's awesome. Um, so Joshua, he currently serves as the RUF Texas A&M international intern. So he is reaching and equipping international students here at Texas A&M. Uh, under Titus Bagby, who's the RUF Campus International Campus Minister. But he completes his internship in May also, and he's going to be going and attending Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, where he will be pursuing his Master of Divinity degree and counseling degree, maybe? Okay, both. Uh, two degrees uh, as he in hopes of pursuing uh, pastoral ministry. So uh, Joshua, he's an avid reader. According to one outside source, uh, he was also all-state soccer player and swimmer in high school. Some would say he has ice in his veins. So if you if you meet him on the soccer field, you're going to get home. So uh, he's really good at it. So uh, yeah, Joshua, we're really glad you're with us tonight. So I'm going to read real quick uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. If you have a bulletin here, you look behind me on the screen here, it's behind you. But the title for the sermon is The Word, the word Is Not Bound. So let me read for us God's word in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8-13. through 13. I'll pray for us and then invite Joshua up to preach God's word. So this is God's word. Remember Christ, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, 
that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word remains forever. It is not bound. So I pray tonight that you be with Joshua. Would you encourage him? Father, would you speak through him? Lord, would he, as well as all of us, uh, taste and see that you are good? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Josh Coleman. Is that better? Yes. Okay, sweet. Great to be with you all. Super excited. Um, as I was talking to Austin earlier this week, I was telling him it, it feels kind of surreal to get to be here with you because I was a student here for four years. RUF had a huge impact on me um, during my time um, in college, and so I, it's kind of surreal, and I'm so thankful to get to be with you and open God's Word with you, so thanks for having me. Um, as Austin read for us, um, we're going to be in 2 Timothy 2, and the passage that we're studying tonight um, is a passage where we see Paul, who is at the end of his race, he's at the, at the end of his ministry, giving advice and encouragement to his young protege, Timothy, and Timothy was basically like a son to Paul, and, and Paul is giving Timothy advice because he wants him to have the same kind of ministry that Paul himself has had. And as, as Paul is writing to Timothy, he wants to give him hope. He wants uh, Timothy to see his own story as connected up into a bigger story of what God is doing in the world. And ultimately, I think what Paul has for us tonight is he wants to, to give us a hope that can stand the test of suffering and actually move through suffering to glory. And so I don't know where you're coming in tonight. I don't know if you're coming in with uh, a lot of hope just coming off winter conference and you're on a spiritual high, that is awesome. Uh, that's such a blessing. But it's also very possible that you're coming in at a low ebb of hope. And I, I think whichever place you find yourself, uh, Paul actually has encouragement for us tonight as well as for Timothy. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting as I was studying and kind of doing some research uh, for this sermon, uh, I found a CDC poll um, that said that recently they've conducted a survey by self-report and found that 40% of high school students uh, feel a persistent sense of hopelessness and despair. Um, the article that I was reading also kind of went on to point out that 
uh, it seems as though over the last two decades, especially among the youngest generation, Gen Z and, and also now Gen Alpha, um, mental health and anxiety and depression all seem to be on the rise. And that's probably not a surprise to you. I, I would assume that y'all have experienced this or seen people who are experiencing this. And what I wanna say is, I think Paul has something for us tonight as he's speaking to Timothy, because Paul actually has a hope that lasts for him even in the midst of looking down the barrel at his own execution. You see, 2 Timothy is the final book that Paul wrote in his ministry, and he's writing to Timothy in chains. He's, he's looking down the barrel. He knows that he is going to be executed because he will continue um, to hold forward Christ as Lord before Caesar. And because he was unwilling to deny Christ, he knows he's going to die. And so he's writing to Timothy at the end of his own ministry because he wants Timothy to have the same kind of fortitude in the midst of struggle and suffering and trials that Paul himself has. And so I, I think that there's something for us tonight there as well. Um, and so in verse 8 of chapter 2, uh, the first thing that Paul says, and this is so typical of Paul, always the first thing for him is he says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Right? Constantly throughout the ministry of Paul, he is always pointing us to Jesus Christ. He is constantly keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And he says, Timothy, if you would have a ministry that bears up under suffering with hope, if you would like to have a ministry that moves through suffering to glory, then you need the kind of hope that comes from remembering Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes there. As you fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the risen one, the offspring of David, you'll have hope. And that's the gospel that we preach. That's the gospel that we hold dearly in RUF. So I remember uh, when I was a student here at Texas A&M, um, at that time the campus minister here was named Ben Haley. And my freshman year I came in, I joined RUF, and uh, I was just embraced by these older students. I, I was totally surprised by how just loved I was and encouraged. And I, I just, I loved this community of grace and Ben Haley would meet with me and, and mentor me, but also a lot of the older students would really pour into me. So as a freshman, I loved my experience, and I sort of, I ended up joining like kind of a servant leadership team at the end of my freshman year. And so I remember at the beginning of my sophomore year, uh, Ben Haley sat down with me. It was um, in, a, in a sandwich shop that I'm not sure is still over there on Northgate or not. Uh, but we sat down, and Ben said to me, you know, Josh, I've been thinking about what we're going to do in RUF this semester. And, you know, I would like to do a couple things differently, and I wanted to get a student's perspective. You know, you've done RUF for a year. Um, I'm thinking about what, what can we do to reach the campus for the gospel. So here's, here's my question for you, Josh. If you were the campus minister at Texas A&M, and you were called here and sent here to bring the gospel to the people all around you on this campus, uh, what would you do? If, if, if that was your role, what would you do? And uh, the question kind of struck me. It changed my perspective a little bit. I hadn't thought about it in those terms. And so I remember kind of sitting there and trying to give Ben some uh, wise advice. I was trying to seem wiser than I was because you know, Ben was very wise and I was just a you know, freshman. And so I was like, well, you know, I think we could do you know, maybe some Bible studies in this way and study these things because they seem relevant now. And maybe we could have some accountability groups and I was kind of reaching for things to, to give him advice on, on how to be a campus minister. 
And I remember I got to the end, and he looked at me, and he said, you know, Josh, there's a lot of good things in there. I felt kind of good. I was like, oh, he's going to take my advice on what we should do this semester. And then he said, Josh, you know, you said a lot of good things in there. I think you should do some of that. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, no. I mean, why don't you go start those groups? Why don't you do that? And that totally changed my perspective. I remember I was not thinking in those terms. But what I think what Ben was doing for me is actually quite similar to what Paul is doing for Timothy here when he says, remember Jesus Christ. Because what Paul is doing for Timothy is he's saying, you have your story and your things that you need to focus on, but don't forget that your story is actually linked up to a bigger story of what God is doing among the nations. And actually, the, the invitation for, for Timothy and also for us is that we can actually link up and participate in the bigger story of what God is doing among the nations to bring salvation, to bring, to bring people out of darkness into light. Through Jesus Christ, the resurrected son of David, who is also the son of God. And, and I think what Ben was doing for me is Ben was saying, it's good that you're a student. You know, like He wasn't telling me it's bad to focus on my studies or any of that. All of those things are good. But he was saying, do those things in the context of a bigger story. Right? At, he, he was reminding me, what if you were sent here as a campus minister? So that he could give me the perspective that actually, if you're a Christian, wherever you happen to find yourself, whether it's an engineering class or a, or a literature class, wherever you happen to find yourself, you're actually a sent one. God put you there on purpose. And he has purposes for you there because he sent you to be an emissary of his love and of his grace and, and actually of his hope. All around us are people who are walking around who don't know the hope that you have. If you're a Christian, you've been saved out of darkness and now you've been given a hope and a future and what Ben was doing for me, and I think what Paul is doing for us as well, is just saying, live all of the, the normal, everyday parts of your life in the context of that bigger story. Because when you start doing that, when you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, when you're remembering the bigger story, when God puts someone in front of you who desperately needs hope, you can tell them about the hope that you have. And so that, that, that's why always Paul begins with remembering Jesus Christ the offspring of David, the better David, as preached in my gospel, the risen one from the dead. And then Paul goes on to say, uh, for which I am suffering, bound in chains as a criminal. So Paul is no stranger to suffering. And the Christian life is not a life where we get to sidestep suffering. Uh, actually, the Christian life probably is a life where you're going to suffer more as a consequence of following Jesus. Jesus says, if you would follow me, pick up your cross. So that's actually par for the course. That's expected. But, but Paul says, look, I, I'm suffering. I'm in chains here. And Paul was beaten. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. And now he's looking down the barrel at his own execution. And there's real suffering that he's experiencing. And yet, you don't see a Paul that's hopeless in the midst of his trials. You actually see a, a, a Paul that's filled with hope. And, he's, and why is he filled with hope? You, you see it there. In verse 9, he says... But the word of God is not bound. And, and you see immediately that Paul is connecting his smaller story to the bigger story of what God is doing. You, you may bind me, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God is moving forward, and God is saving people out of darkness into light. Just like he has always been doing. His story is moving forward. His kingdom is marching forward. And actually, Paul saw his story 
as connected to that bigger story. And so even though he is bound, he has hope because he knows that the word of God is not and cannot ever be bound. So, as we see there, I mean, the word of God is not bound. I, I, I want to share a story about that as we, as we think about that. Um, there's a man named Charles Spurgeon. Uh, many, many of you would probably have, have heard of him. Many of you would know him. Uh, I love Charles Spurgeon. And uh, Charles Spurgeon is a man who's very famous for his Christian confession, uh, for his, his love of Christ, his, his lifelong devotion to Christ, and his sharing the gospel with everyone that he met. And, uh, however, at, at the beginning, uh, he actually was not a Christian. As a young man, he was running away from God. And there's a story that he tells about how he actually came to Christ. Uh, he was on his way um, in the city of London. He was on his way uh, in the middle of a blizzard. And because it was so cold outside, he ended up ducking into a church, not for any other reason than just it was too cold in the blizzard, so he had to get out of the, out of the cold. So he, he ducked into this Methodist chapel. And, and Spurgeon recounts the story this way. Uh, he, he says there were maybe 15 people in the room. He's, he's a young man, maybe 15 or 16 years old. He, he's, he's not a Christian. He, he has no interest in spiritual matters. And yet he says this. I sometimes think that I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday afternoon uh, when I was going... Uh, on my way, when, when I could go no further, I turned down into a court and came to a small Methodist chapel. And in that chapel, there might have been a dozen or 15 people. And the minister did not come that morning, snowed up, I suppose. And so because the minister was not there, a poor man, a, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of the sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. And then Spurgeon continues to relate that uh, this man, as, as he entered the pulpit, he was obliged to stick to the text in front of him for the, the pure reason he had nothing else to say. He hadn't prepared a sermon, so he just had to stick to his text. And Spurgeon says he didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but it didn't matter. The, the man said, my dear friends, this is a simple text. He, he read the text that said, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth from Isaiah 45, 22. The man said, my friends, this is a simple text. It only says look. Now, that does not take a great deal of effort. You don't have to lift your finger or your foot to look. You just have to look. A man need not go to college to look. A man need not uh, be worth a thousand a year to look. You can be the biggest fool on earth and look. And if you look, you will be saved. He went on to say in his broad Essex accent, many of you are looking to yourselves. There's no use looking there. I, many of you are looking to yourselves. Then the man followed that up by saying this. Jesus cries out, look unto me. I am sweating drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend and I am seated at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me. Look to me and be ye saved. When he had gotten about the length of what he could spin out, which had been about ten minutes, he saw Charles Spurgeon in the gallery. And Spurgeon said, I think because it was such a small crowd, he knew I was uh, a, a newcomer. And the man uh, pointed at Spurgeon and he said, young man, you look miserable. Spurgeon said, well, I did, but I wasn't used to having my personal appearance commented on from the pulpit. It's 
but it was a blow struck. The man continued and said, you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death, unless you heed my text and look to Jesus Christ now. But if you look to Jesus, you will be saved. And then he shouted as only a Methodist can, Spurgeon says, young man, look to Jesus Christ. He said there and then the clouds were gone. The darkness was rolled away. That moment I saw the sun and I could have sung with the, the, the loudest of them and the most enthusiastic of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The word is not bound. The same word that transformed Charles Spurgeon, not from a great orator, not from someone who had amazing rhetorical skill. This is just an average everyday guy who stuck to his text and it transformed a heart. The word is not bound. It is transforming hearts and lives. It has done that. It will continue to do that because God's word is powerful. Augustine, one of the most famous Christians from antiquity, he said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't need to defend it. It will defend itself. Let it out of the cage. It will defend itself. Uh, my grandfather, after I uh, had, had been talking to him one day, um, we, we were talking about revival because um, I've, I've been praying for revival, and uh, he had been praying for revival much longer than, than I had. Um, but he told me he told me this story about how um, uh, there used to be a great authority on revival named Dr. J. Edwin Orr, and, and Dr. Orr he was very famous. He was very well known uh, as an as an academic studier of revivals, uh, and this was back in the 1940s. And so in the 1940s, he's, he's a professor at Wheaton College, and he got a group of students together, and they went to go see um, the refectory uh, where in Epworth, where John Wesley had based his ministry. And uh, these students, they, they took a tour through this refectory, and they found, uh, as they went through the tour, they saw all of these different things that John and Charles Wesley had, had done, and they eventually ended up in John Wesley's room. And beside his bed, uh, there were two impressions in the carpet because John Wesley would kneel beside his bed for hours every night and pour out his heart to God and pray, God, please bring revival. We need it so badly. Please bring revival. And, and Charles Wesley would pray that over and over and over again. And so the impressions from his knees were still in the carpet. And so the, the, the group continued on. Um, they left the refectory. They, they, they got back on the bus and, and as they're getting ready to leave, uh, Dr. Orr realized that one of the students was actually missing. Uh, one of them was not on the bus, so he had to get off the bus and go back and search through the whole house to try to find this missing student. And he found a young college student with his knees in the impressions, crying out to God, do it again, do it again, do it again. That young man was Billy Graham. And Edwin Orr said, all right, Billy, it's time to go. Nobody knew who Billy Graham was at that time. But Billy Graham would later go on to say, I have had the privilege of preaching the gospel on every continent and in most countries of the world. I have found that when I present the simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ with authority, quoting from the very word of God, he takes that message and drives it supernaturally deep into the human heart. You see, what, what Billy Graham understood, and what Charles Spurgeon understood, and what Paul understood, 
is that the word of God is not bound. Based on the statistics that they have, and, and uh, it, it may even be a larger number, but the Billy Graham Foundation, based on what they know for sure, 3.2 million people accepted Billy Graham's invitation to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior throughout his crusades. The, the word of God is not bound. It, it is powerful. It's effective. It changes hearts and minds. It transforms us. As, as we do what we're doing now, where we come together and, and we gather around the Bible, where we, we, we read this book and, and we sing it and we preach it, there's something that happens where hope is produced in us. Uh, it's so interesting. Actually, Harvard University recently conducted a study where they found, uh, just through pure induction, that uh, people who read their Bible on a consistent basis are 33 percentage points more likely to have hope. Uh, they're, they're doing a, a, they have a human flourishing lab, and uh, they are not uh, a beacon for the gospel. I mean, the, Harvard has no bias. They're not pro-Christian. They don't have like a, a spin. They're just looking at data and saying, okay, people in this country who are thriving in the midst of suffering, what are they doing differently? And that was like one of the biggest findings that they found is that people who are reading their Bibles, actually, there's something about this bigger story of what God is doing in the world that as we live into it, as we read it, as we study it, as we connect our smaller story up into the bigger story of what God is doing, it actually produces hope in us. And so Paul had found this in his own life. He's passing it on to Timothy, but it's interesting to see um, you know, secular institutions are, are coming along and seeing the same thing just emerging out of pure empirical study. The, the word is not bound, and it produces hope. Paul then goes on to say in, in verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. And so Paul is saying, I'll do whatever it takes for, for the love of the lost. Paul was one who had been an enemy of Christ. And, and Christ had showed up, knocked him off his horse, and saved him in an amazing display of grace and power. And, and Paul was brought uh, from being a persecutor of the church, now on board with saying, my life is actually only lived for the purpose of uh, inviting other people to know this Savior who's shown grace to me, a sinner. And Paul is saying now in verse 10, I'll, I'll experience whatever the cost is, whatever suffering I have to take. I'll take it for the sake of the people who are around me, who are, who are struggling because they don't have the hope that I have. I'll, I'll proclaim the gospel to them. And, and Paul, you know, famously, he said, you know, I, I didn't come with rhetorical brilliance. I didn't come as some master orator. I just decided to preach one thing and one thing only. Jesus Christ crucified and risen. That's my one thing. And, and, and that is actually the message that transforms people. That is the message of the book, of the Bible. That is the message of the Word of God. And as we meditate on it, it actually brings transformation. It, it, it brings transformation. And the elect are saved. People who do not yet know Christ are saved. They're pulled out of darkness into light. And, and I wonder if there are people around this campus who are beginning to be more open to Christ. If, if, if there are people around this campus who would be open to being, to being invited to church. There may be people around you who are struggling, and they're asking the question, is there anyone who will love me? Is, is, is there anyone who will move towards me in the midst of my struggle? And the Christian answer to that is, yes, Jesus will. Um, this is so interesting. I mean, uh, 
I have a professor who has a good friend. Uh, his good friend worked at Labrie, uh, which is the ministry that Francis Schaeffer started, if you know who Francis Schaeffer is. And uh, this, this guy who works at Labrie said, 10 years ago, people came to Labrie and they said, uh, what's my purpose? What's the meaning of my life? Um, is there a God? How do I know him? He, he said, now everyone that comes to Labrie asks one question. I'm suffering, is there anyone who will love me? And the answer to that is yes. Jesus Christ is the, is the God on high who empties himself and comes down and becomes a servant for the lost. Jesus Christ, uh, there's, a, there's a great little book by B.B. Warfield where he examines, it's called The Emotional Life of Our Lord, and he goes through and looks at every single time that there's an emotion attributed to Jesus in the Bible. And by far and away, the most uh, common emotion that Jesus experiences in the Bible is sadness and sorrow that then moves to compassion. He is moved with compassion constantly when he sees the suffering of people around him. Jesus was weeping. He, he was a God who wept. He, he, he's a God who knows our sorrows. He was, he was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And yet he steps into that. And that is actually the call of the Christian life, is that we move into suffering as the hands and feet of Jesus. We don't sidestep it. We're surrounded by people who are trying to numb their suffering. We're surrounded, and we do that too. Uh, we try to sidestep our suffering, but the, the strange thing about Jesus is he says it's blessed to mourn. It's blessed to experience suffering because actually if you move through it, you'll be comforted. Actually, the Christian life is not a life where we step around suffering. It's a life that moves through suffering to glory. And that's the invitation. And that's why Paul says, I'll endure whatever it takes. I'll endure whatever, whatever the cost is. Because I want to move towards those around me who are suffering with the love of Jesus Christ as his hands and his feet. And so that, that is why we actually share this gospel. You know, if evangelism is something that is um, very intimidating to you, you're not alone. Uh, it's intimidating to me. Um, but I, I, I think when we start to frame it this way, as I'm, I'm not, it's not about propaganda. It's not about trying to stir people up. It's actually about moving towards people with love. And, and if they're open to it, sharing the hope that you have. You don't, you don't, have, to, uh, you don't have to change people's minds. It's not, it's not us that change people's minds. But if we sit down with people, we open God's word. There's a power in the word of God because the word of God is, is not bound. We may be bound, but the word of God is not bound. We, we may not have the words, but the word of God has the word. And I think there are people around us who need the hope that we have. And so th that's why we move, we move forward. We, we move forward as emissaries of Christ's love. Jesus said, there's no greater love than this, but that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then he says, I have called you friends. Saints, if you're a Christian today, you've been loved in the most self-sacrificially way possible by the king of the universe who came down, became a servant, and died on a cross for us. How can we then not move out into a hurting world with love? That the, the love that we've experienced becomes love expressed. Love, love experienced becomes love extended in the Christian life. And that's the call of evangelism. It's, it's not that you have to, to win all the arguments or say it perfectly. It's that you move forward with the hope to give people that they may not have. And they may be suffering because they don't have it. And, and Paul says, I'll suffer whatever it takes. I'll, I'll be the one to suffer if it means this person can come to faith in Jesus Christ experience the joy of being connected to the God of the universe who loves them individually.
So I have, um, I have a area coordinator. The way RUF works is like there's my boss is Titus. He's a campus minister. He's like Austin. And then there's like another pastor uh, who's an area coordinator who kind of like coordinates multiple campus ministers. And uh, he, he was kind of talking to me about evangelism one time. And he said, you know, uh, there, Peter is very confrontational in the way he does evangelism. Paul is very considered and conversational in the way he does evangelism. He said, but, you know, you don't have to be either of them. You can be the ex-blind man. When, when the Pharisees come to him and they say, is Jesus the son of God? He goes, look, I don't know. I just know I was blind and now I can see. So make of that what you want. But he transformed me. Maybe he could transform you. And he said, you know, you could also be the woman at the well. The woman at the well just says, come and see. I've met this man. He told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the son of David? Could he be the one that we've been waiting for? Could he be the Messiah? And then all of these Samaritan people flood out to meet Jesus. And they come back and they say, now we believe because we've experienced him for ourselves. We, we don't just believe because of what you told us. We, we believe because we've experienced him. At the, as a Christian, when you're doing evangelism, you're just, you're just a beggar showing other beggars where the bread is. It's not on you. Jesus transforms people. We don't transform people. But we have a message of hope to share with the world that's hurting. And we move forward with love because Jesus has poured himself out in love for us. So we move through that. Now we get to this last poetic section here, verses 11 through 13. It says this, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So th this is union language. Uh, this is union with Christ language. The, the Christian life, the way it's lived is that when you put your faith in Jesus, you receive his Holy Spirit, and that connects you to Jesus. And, and what that means is what Paul says here in verse 11, that when Jesus died, we died as Christians. And when Jesus was resurrected, resurrection life burst into our lives too, such that we now will not end our life in the grave, but we move through the grave to glory. Actually, uh, we, we have the hope that, that because of Jesus, we also will be resurrected. Now, we also die as Christ died, but we die with him and then we live with him. We move through suffering to glory. The Christian life is not a life without death. It is actually a life where we are constantly experiencing death. We are putting our selfish desires to death. We are putting our sins to death. And we are straining forward towards righteousness. We're straining upward towards the upward call of Christ Jesus. We're, we're, we're seeking to forgive the people around us, which is so hard. We're seeking to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're doing these things that Jesus calls us to because there's something about the message of Jesus that actually empowers us to be salt and light in the midst of a dark day. That's what Jesus said about his people. He said, I'm calling you to be a city on a hill. I'm calling you to be a light in the midst of darkness. And so if you live with him, if you die with him, you will also live with him. If you endure with him, you will also reign with him. Jesus endured suffering, and the servant is not greater than the master. If Jesus was persecuted, we ought to expect to be per persecuted. If Jesus experienced trials and suffering and death, we also ought to expect that. But the mystery of the gospel is this, that we, we don't stop there. Jesus says it's blessed to mourn because there's comfort on the other side. The, the, the mystery of the cross is that those who seek their own life will lose it, 
but those who lay down their life for Jesus' sake will find it. It's a mystery, but we move through suffering to glory. We don't sidestep it. And, and that's what it means when it says we, if we endure with him, we will also reign with him. Jesus is a humble king. He's the God of the universe, uh, transcendent above all other uh, beings. He, he's the ground of being itself. He, he's always existed in perfect communion with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, perfectly existing in, in loving relationship with each other. And he laid his glory by and came down from heaven to become a servant to live and to suffer alongside us, to take our sin and our shame and the punishment thereof upon himself on the cross, to be planted in the dirt and then raised. And if you're a Christian and your faith is in him, you too will move through death to life. You will endure with him and you will reign with him. Saints, the, the, the Christian life is a life of suffering. But it, it, it's, a life of, it's a life that moves through suffering to glory. And so, uh, then, then we get to this um, sobering statement in verse 12, where it says, If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we, de- if we deny him, he also will deny us. And, and this is sobering. Now, this is not sin that's being talked about. It's not saying, if you commit a sin, Jesus will deny you. That's not what it's saying at all. We know from 1 John, if anyone says they have not sinned, they're a liar. They're deceiving themselves. We, we, we've all sinned and, and gone astray. Uh, so this, it's not talking about sin. Uh, it, this is talking about the people who Paul was talking about in Philippians 2 when he said, There are many who I tell you about with tears who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their God is their, their, God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. He's saying there, there are some people who will deny Christ continually and harden their heart over and over again like Pharaoh unto death. And... The, the sobering message is, if, if we do that, Christ will deny us. But this is not saying that if you sin, Christ will deny you, because if that was the case, no one has any hope. If we could lose our salvation, we would lose it a hundred times a day. The, this, the salvation that we've been given in Jesus Christ is not based on our works. It's based on what Jesus has done on our behalf. That's why it's secure. So you can be assured of your salvation if you place your hope in Jesus Christ. Not because of the, the strength of your uh, works, but rather because of the strength of the object of your hope, which is Jesus. Jesus says, all those the Father has placed in my hand, I will not lose one. So, so this is not talking about sin. This is talking about those who persistently refuse Christ's generous offer of salvation, even unto death. But Jesus is always knocking. The door is always open. That's why it says in verse 13, even when we are faithless, Yet Jesus Christ remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It's actually the very nature of Jesus Christ. It's it's his own character. He can't deny it. He cannot be different. Jesus will always be to us Jesus. That is who he is. He will never change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is the God who pursues sinners. He is the God who holds up his end of the covenant even when we break our end of the covenant. And that's why we have hope, because... If it was based on our works, none of us could boast. If it was based on uh, our righteous deeds, Romans tells us none is righteous, no, not one. None of us have uh, the the resume. If we push our resume across and say, God, accept me based on this resume, he's going to push it back and say, you don't don't want me to try to accept you based on this. Jesus says here, push my resume across. If you push Jesus' resume across, 
God says, accept it. You're in the kingdom. And it, it, it's not based on, you can be the, the, the greatest sinner and the greatest fool, but if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you're safe. And then you'll begin to be transformed from the inside out. That's the way the gospel works. It's union with Christ. It's, it's a hope that, that actually is sustained in the midst of suffering. The cross comes before the crown, but the crown does come. And so we move through suffering to glory. We, we put our faith in Jesus, and we're united to him by faith. And uh, I'll close with this quote from John Bunyan, speaking about the faithful Savior that we have. Uh, John Bunyan was, was writing about one of my favorite verses in Scripture, John 6.37, where it says this, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Bunyan writes this, But I am a great sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. When we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. That's the hope of the gospel. And I hope you take that as an invitation. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for everyone in this room. Thank you for bringing us together. Heavenly Father, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would be present among us. I ask that you would give us hope and meaning and purpose that stands up to the test of suffering. I ask that you would uh, fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who died, the one who is risen and the one who upholds us by his grace. Help us to move further up and further in, deeper and deeper into your heart, God. Please reunite us back to you. It is in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Texas A&M RUF podcast. If you're interested in joining us for a large group, we would love to see you at All Faiths Chapel on the north side of campus across from Sabisa at 8 p.m. on Wednesdays. Go ahead and follow at AggieRUF on Instagram for updates about any other events we're putting on. We hope to see you around. Thanks and gig'em.